and my essay um, on the teaching of the Buddha was about the Buddha's um, teachings on non-self. I, I opened the essay going back to one of my first um, Sangha meetings here at the temple, uh, well, when the temple was on College Street. Uh, about twice a year we have Sangha meetings where there's a topic is chosen and we get together in groups of you know, 10, 15 people, however many, and uh, just reflect and uh, have conversations about that. I don't remember what the con topic for that year's Sangha uh, meeting was, but I do remember a fellow who um, was fairly new to the temple, and one of the things that we would do when we first um, are going around and introduce ourselves, uh, um, Sunam had asked that we say why we are at the temple. And this fellow said that uh, he was there because um, um, he thought Buddhism was great, the practice and all kinds of things were something that he really you know, wanted to get into, um, except for the part about the ego and the self. He, said, he, he thought that um, um, the greatest contribution that the Greeks had made to humankind was the discovery of the ego, and he wanted to cultivate his ego. And, a thing just went off in my head of, are you crazy? <laughs> like, to me, that, you know, I had studied um, academically uh, some Buddhism and uh, religious studies and philosophy, and to me, ego was just this, a burden. And um, the more I came to the practice of Buddhism, the more I found that this ego, this self, is this weight that we carry with us. Um, but, um, then as I got into the study of the Buddhist teachings, I thought maybe this fellow was kind of onto something here. There was, you know, I don't think he maybe articulated it. Maybe it was what he meant, but I think if he had stuck with Buddhism for a while, I don't know if maybe one of you were him, I'm not sure, I don't remember him. But, um, um, you know, I think there was a way of cultivating that that is maybe a bit different than growing it. Um, so that was what I, I, I studied. Um, and did my presentation on um, uh, earlier this summer. Um, so, as I said, I had studied you know a bit of Buddhism and um, um, religious studies and philosophy, and I you know was now studying um, more intensely you know really religiously in our practice the, the self. And I could intellectualize it so the self is, you know, or the, there, there is no self. Um, that's what the Buddha taught. And intellectually it made sense that this self is something that um, is created, it's impermanent, it, it, it's variable, it fluctuates and changes. And so it made sense to me that there really is no self. But on the other hand, my experience was telling me that I carry this self with me. I have an identity. I, I am a woman. I am a, a, a public servant. I am a, a student of Buddhism. I am a mom. I am this. I am that. I am all these things. So it was really hard to shake that and to, to, to reconcile that experience and my lived experience with the, the teachings of the Buddha. Um, so, um, so earlier, so, so I was kind of trying to get into it, and then earlier this year I went for it to listen to a Dharma talk on, by um, a fellow named Tanisara Bhikkhu. I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with him. He teaches in the um, 
uh, Theravadan tradition, and uh, he travels around giving amazing Dharma talks, like for a day. And um, he has translated the Pali Canon into um, a very accessible kind of English, a really modern English. And but he is so steeped in the tradition himself that it still retains the intent of, of uh, um, I think, as much as we can uh, know, the you know the the original. Um, uh, practitioners and what they shared in the Pali Canon. Um, and one of the things that he did was that he um, he acknowledged the self, that in fact there is a self um, in a sense, and that sure it might be false, it might be temporary, it might be all those things, but for all intents and purposes we have a self. And then more recently, after I finished the essay, I came across um, a writing by another translator named Glenn Wallace, and he equates it to something like a, a mirage. If you're, you know, somebody's traveling in the desert, they're dying of thirst, and then there's the, the heat waves and the reflections of the sun and the, whatever's going on in their head, they see this oasis and a beautiful, you know, uh, source of water. Well, the effect of that on that traveler is very real. They are going to go for that you know, the, 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 the thirsty traveler is going to go for that water. His companion might see something completely different, maybe his mother holding out a cool glass of water. Either way, that effect is still very real to them in the way that um, myself, you know, I am a mother, I am a public servant, I am a student of Buddhism, I am all of these things, is very real and, and, and has, I, I follow the effects of all of those things on me. So, um, so Tanisar kind of broke it down a little bit, and um, uh, he he uh, he explained the uh, the five skandhas in in a way that I hadn't heard before. The five skandhas are these um, what's called aggregates, these things that um, these things that make us up. So, you know, one is form, um, and that is our body, um, the, the form that we take. And um, he explained it how we act on these, uh, our, our skandhas. So our body, what does our body do most of the time? It's looking for, it's, it's feeding, right? It's looking for um, food or sustenance, either, you know, intellectually, for entertainment, for comfort, for companionship, we're, we're constantly feeding this, this body. And then there's um, our feelings. Um, uh, so how do, what, what do our feelings do? Well, we feel hunger, we feel thirst, so we, we act on those feelings. We feel lonely, we look for companionship, we feel something else, we, we uh, feed that. Um, and then there's our perceptions. So um, the, the perceptions are kind of the labels that we put on things. So um, um, what, what am I hungry for, hungry for? You know, a hamburger would be great right now, or you know, um, cheese and crackers, or an apple, or whatever. We 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 label that things that that we we want. And um, then um, we make things, so we fabricate. So um, uh, we, we put all of these things together. So, you know, the example I used in the essay is a clock, okay? I see a clock, it says it's three o'clock. Oh, three o'clock means I have an appointment at 3.30, I have to go, I have to do this, that, and the other thing. And so we put these things together. 
Then the last of the skandhas is consciousness. And um, I, you know, I think most of us exist in, in varying levels of consciousness. And how, so it, it's how aware we are of all of these things and how we put them together. Um, uh, so, you know, so back to hunger, I'm, I'm hungry, but you know, like, do I, um, do I really look at how, what my body is calling for? Or do I just go to the fridge and grab a bag of cookies, right? Or a bag of chips, maybe it's salt, maybe it's sugar, whatever. Um, you know, there's varying levels of that consciousness. Um, but, uh, we can apply the we can go deeply into that consciousness and, and cultivate that, that awareness um, in order to cultivate our actual self. And, and so this was kind of exciting to me that um, we, we can actually cultivate this thing that, for one thing, it doesn't exist, but on the other hand, there's an entire chapter of the Dhammapada called oneself or self, depending on the translation. So the Buddha clearly thought of the self also. Um, here at the temple, um, you know, our um, Samasunam, the Venerable Samasunam, often says that Buddhism is the ultimate um, uh, self-help program. So there's, there's, self is everywhere. Um, so, so it was kind of exciting that you know you could plunge in and, and, and figure this stuff out. Um, that that it is about there is a self. Now, what do I do with it? That was my question. Then, what do I do with this self? Um, and uh, uh, one thing in one of the teachings of the uh, one of the stories about uh, the Buddha teaching, he he said to um, one of uh, one of his his uh, disciples, Ananda that um, uh, this body comes into being through conceit, um, and yet it is by relying on conceit that conceit is abandoned. So if you replace conceit with self, you know, we, um, or just this, um, or ego, it's we, we, we have this, this thing that, that, that brought us here, Right here, like this today, your decisions brought you here. This this self that 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 you're carrying around with you, that I'm carrying with me, brought all of us here together, and it's what can also bring bring to us the freedom of the self and the, the you know this kind of burdens what I call a burdensome ego. Um, so. So how 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 do you do that? Well, Tanisarabika talks about there being. Um, uh, a strategic use of self. So um, you, so by becoming more aware of what we are and how the the choices that we make, um, uh, we we can cultivate it until we are free of of this thing that causes us so much anxiety and anxiousness. Um, the, the 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 Buddha's first sermon was the Four Noble Truths um, and the Noble Eightfold Paths. It was called Setting in Motion the Wheel of Dharma. So the, um, the Four Noble Truths, um, like the suffering, um, there is a cause of suffering, there is uh, a way out of suffering, a cease of suffering, and um, the way out of suffering is the Noble Eightfold Path. So here's the problem, suffering, and here's how to get out of it, the Noble Eightfold Path. Um, um, and it, 
can be really simple, I think, um, but it takes a lot of practice. It takes um, you know a certain amount of effort, and the the um, uh, um, the noble eightfold path can be broken down into uh, three three subgroups. Um, so the one subgroup is um, um, right effort and and right mindfulness and right concentration. Um, this is about meditation. This is about sitting on your mat and cushion and coming to um, you know focusing on the breath and and in increasing your awareness. So so that's that that increases our awareness. So that helps when we're looking at those five skandhas and the bottom one being consciousness. You know raising that consciousness. Um, and then when we apply right speech, right conduct, and right livelihood, that is um, helping us to engage in the rest of the world so that we're doing as little harm as possible to others, to ourselves, so that we, we live more harmoniously. And then the third group is um, right view and right discrimination. So again, that's, you know, seeing deeply into things, not making rash judgments, being, being um, aware of, of something that we're looking at and how we view it. And then just being discriminating. You know, what we, what we take on to, um, to carry with us in our practice or, or a habit that we might want to um, adapt or adopt. Um, but, and then these things, they keep, they keep going back. So it, it isn't like you do first, you spend years on right effort, right mindfulness and, and um, right concentration, and then you do these other three. This, these things kind of feed into our practice over and over. And, um, you know, as we move through, we become more conscious. I feel I have become more conscious of the choices I've made and, um, and am starting to liberate myself from some of these burdens that I've carried around with me. Um, so for example, when, when I was born, um, I was born to um, Ukrainian Scottish parents, so I had all that cultural um, implications piled on me as an infant. I was given a name, um, I was given a, 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 a gender, so they put me in pink frilly things. <laughs> and then as I moved through life, I, um, I you know, was based on sort of reward and punishment, I chose, you know, certain other things that then I adopted as myself. As I got a little bit older and had a bit more freedom to choose who I hung out with, the popular or not so popular cultures I adopted as my, um, you know, personal philosophies and favorites and, and how I presented myself to the world, those were my actions. This was me taking on and building my own self. Um, and then there's all the stuff that clings to that, stuck to that, that I didn't want, but you know, you kind of stuck with it. But as, I, as I'm moving through this practice, I'm finding I can kind of shed some of that other baggage that I thought I wanted, and along with that goes the stuff that I kind of didn't need and was, it was burdensome and stinky and, um, you know, brought me bad thoughts when I couldn't sleep at night, things like that. Um, and so, as I become more aware of that, I can go back to these skandhas and think, okay, so what does this body need? You know, what do I need for comfort? 
Well, what, I mean, I do need to protect myself from the cold in winter. I do need to feed myself. Um, I am here in this level of existence for a reason, so I might as well make the most of it. Um, so I'm going to stay alive for a while. I'm going to take care of myself and uh, uh, you know, do my best to learn and cultivate um, the heart of enlightenment and um, wisdom. So then I, uh, um, okay, now I've mixed up my pages, where's my, um, so then I start making better choices as to, you know, when I'm feeling hungry, you know, am I going to go for the bag of cookies or maybe the apple? I can, you know, start making choices like that, and I can make these choices in my life, too, who I associate with, um, how I present myself, the words that I use. The, the, um, the levels of compassion. Sometimes we need to step back, you know, when our friends are suffering. Um, sometimes we need to step back and kind of let them, you know, let, we're there for them, but we need to step back and let them go through their own whatever. I don't want to impose my ego on my suffering friend because she doesn't need me to, to be there. She doesn't need me to take anything from her. She needs me to work through whatever she's working through, and I'll be there when she's ready to make that connection again or to unburden her in ways that are good for both of us and our friendship. So, so this has been, this has been a, it's all fairly new to me. So my, my intention when I came here to do this talk was to present to you my most authentic self. <laughs> and to be honest, I'm going to be 58 in a few weeks, and it's been 58 years of building this other self and piling it on. I kind of came to this fairly recently, so I'm trying to be authentic, but I've got a lot of shedding to do before I can really present you with my really authentic self. But that kind of leads me to um, the creative aspect of, of the, the self, non-self. Um, dichotomy. Um, my very first uh, Dharma talk uh, at, at, at the temple when, when Samu Sunam was here, um, he, uh, he, he recited an old um, proverb. Uh, and the proverb goes, um, if you want to be happy for a day or a night, get drunk. If you want to be happy for a few years, get married. If you want to be happy for a lifetime, grow a garden. And that resonated with me. I was only going to come to learn how to meditate. I was not going to do the religious thing. But when he said that to me, it really hit me in a, in a place that I understood. And coming to this, I've understood it a little bit more deeply that the garden, um, of course it's metaphorical, but the garden can be ourself. It can be the cultivating of ourself until no self exists. And uh, I think that's the freedom that we're all here to find. So um, that's it. Thank you. Thank you, Tato.